Holding Court with Mike Trevelyan and Dean Sheridan. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Holding Court with myself, Dean Sheridan and my barrister friend, Michael Trevelyan. This is the podcast where we talk about legal issues, crimes and laws. See, I've worked on a spiel. Um, (laughs) And Mike is a trained barrister, so therefore he has advice. You can listen to him and he he has a right to talk about it, whereas I don't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i will be heard dean i will not be silenced sorry that we didn't manage to record last week due to uh scheduling conflicts and other issues we were unable to get together to give you your piece of joy for that week so we apologize for that but we should have a very good show this week how are you mike uh, i am well thank you and um, i uh, am Slightly mystified as to what is going on with Percy, my dog. He seems to be incredibly fidgety at the moment. So I am currently checking to make sure that he is all right. Um, But apart from that, uh, yeah, I'm all good. I've had a busy week. I've got a busy week coming up next week and the week after at work. Um, Last week or the week before, uh, a case I was involved in went to the Court of Appeal. I was not instructed in the Court of Appeal case, but I was waiting for the handing down of judgment so that was quite exciting and uh yeah so it's been a it's been a busy old time how are you uh yes i'm uh very good it. yeah time is has gone fast since the last time that we that yes. we spoke and we just had a little chat prior to this about the craziness of the kyle rittenhouse case which we discussed and uh probably will discuss now next week's podcast once um we know what the outcome is and whether or not cities have been burnt due to that outcome we'll find out won't we we will we will tune in next week to see if uh, a city near you has been burnt to the ground <laughs> well, so we'll just change the podcast to that it'll just be like <laughs> city burning news do you want to know what cities are burning this week well just yes. tune in we, we could call it the the apocopod the apocopod oh, yeah. pretty good Right, nobody take that. That is now officially yeah, ours. Trademark. Trademark. <laughs> a barrister heard it. it it's pretty much <laughs> sealed. Yeah, that's it. So, I'll move on to our first case this week. And have you ever heard of the band Nirvana? I have. And I have also heard of what I understand to be the Buddhist concept of Nirvana. So which one would you like to discuss? (laughs) I am going to talk about the band, the 90s grunge band. And basically, have you ever heard of an album called Nevermind? I have heard of Nevermind. Um, Is that the one with the baby on the cover? I can't remember. Yes, it is. It's a very famously has a little naked baby on the cover underwater. And in front of it is like a $1 bill on the edge of a fishing hook. And I'm guessing it's, you know, that kind of from the day you're born, you're chasing money and wealth is I'm I'm guessing the idea of that kind of cover, especially myself being a big fan of the band. You won't be able to see this, but Mike can see that I have a few uh, Kurt Cobain slash Nirvana memorabilia behind me in my office. Actually, he might not be able to see it today because my camera is terrible and uh, <laughs> it's dark, but he has seen it before. So it's a very, very famous cover of an album. It's just one of those iconic album covers. And basically, the the man, now man, who was that little baby, because that's how life and growth works, um, <laughs> is, is trying to sue Nirvana 
and the I think the record company and managers uh, because he says that basically it's pretty much uh, ruined his life and that it was sexual exploitation. <laughs> so Spencer Alden, the man who was f- photographed as a baby on the album cover for Nevermind's uh, for Nirvana's Nevermind, is suing the band alleging sexual exploitation. The cover depicts Alden as a four-month-old in a swimming pool, grasping for a dollar bill that's being dangled in front of him on a fishing line. Now 30, Alden says his parents never signed a release authorizing the use of his image on the album. He also alleges the nude image constitutes child pornography. The images exposed Spencer's intimate body part and lasciviously... I believe, displayed Spencer's genitals from the time he was an infant to the present day. Well, that that doesn't make sense because it's not shown as gen. It's not like every year they update it with what his dong looks like now. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone can see what his penis looked like when he was a baby. Uh, Non-sexualized photos of infants are generally not considered child pornography under U.S. law. Uh, when you think back, especially in the U.K., to those old like Pampers adverts when someone would like just kiss a baby's ass and then put on a pair of Pampers on the TV on the baby, the to be oh, on the baby. Yeah. <laughs> that w- probably would have been seen as sexual exploitation if it was the other way around. However, Alden's lawyer Robert Y. Lewis argues that the inclusion of the dollar bill which was superimposed after the photograph was taken, makes the minor seem like a sex worker. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that's butchered at straws, because if you know the band Nirvana and what I was just talking about, I thought it looked more like. Um, it's not quite the case, I don't believe. It, lo- it looks like you're chasing money from the fact that you- from the time you're a child, and it doesn't have any implication that that money also will lead to any form of sexual exploitation. But then again, it's how you look at it, isn't it? And whether they could push that that sort of um, story. The legal case also alleges that Nirvana has promised to cover Alden's genitals with a sticker, but the agreement was not upheld. Alden alleges his true identity and legal name are forever tied to the commercial sexual exploitation he experienced as a minor, which has been distributed and sold worldwide from the time he was a baby to the present day. He claims he has suffered and will continue to suffer lifelong damages as a result of the artwork, including extreme and permanent emotional distress, as well as interference with his normal development and educational progress and medical and psychological treatment. And he's asking for $150,000. So they've uh, kindly uh, put in the exchange, which is £109,000, from each of the 15 defendants, who include surviving band members Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic, the managers of Kurt Cobain's estate, Cobain's former wife, Courtney Love, and the photographer, Kirk Weddle. So it turns out that Kirk Weddle was a friend of theirs and uh, paid the parents like 200 bucks or something to get this, this picture. And at times, see, see, the thing is, he's also, after this, taken other pictures on various anniversaries of the album, so the 10th, 20th, and 25th, of him reenacting the scene underwater, in shorts this time, not not with his knob out, but or penis for anyone who is uh, abroad. Well, whereabouts is knob used? It's just the UK, isn't it? Really? I think it's a UK thing, knob. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I wonder if it even extends as far as Scotland. Is it a Scottish thing, knob? Uh, well, yeah, but Scottish people know what knob means. I'm sure they would. But anyway, <laughs> so, yeah. So he he's done it before, and sometimes he seems he's a little bit upset a bit, and sometimes he he seems to have enjoyed it, um, like you know being famous for that. Um, 
but I, I think the main feelings he feels that the album made a lot of money and made uh, people a lot of money and he didn't get a great deal from it and so I, I don't think he has much to stand on in the way of like the sexual exploitation point of view but whether they didn't sign an agreement for its release could then discuss to make some extra money off off the album. I mean, let's face it, the majority of the money would have been made by the uh, by the actual record company and probably then a percentage of that to the band. So what do you think about this, Mike? Have you heard about this? I, I had heard about this, actually. I hadn't looked into it because, um, well, because I thought it might be a topic for the podcast. I didn't want to preempt anything. Um, so I'm glad that you brought this one up. Um, firstly, I, I agree with you. If, if there's an issue about the image rights and the release of those rights, then uh, I think there could, you know, potentially be some damages there. Um, although, I mean, even that, I'm not 100, percent you know, convinced by. But the shakier ground is, is obviously, as you've identified, the um, you know, sexual exploitation elements. I think that's a huge leap. Uh, I agree with your interpretation. My, my interpretation of the album cover has always been that it's a sort of commentary on capitalism uh, and the the need to chase money from an early age, um, rather than having any sort of sexual connotation. So I, I simply just don't see that there's much in that point. But I suppose it will depend, because I, I'm guessing that the US law would operate in such a way that the the parents would be entitled to consent on behalf of the child. So it will depend, I suppose, on whether or not that consent was obtained and, as you say, the release forms signed and all the rest of it for the image rights. But I would imagine that if the proper consent was obtained from the parents, then um, that's pretty much the end of it, I would have thought. Uh, yeah, Which I believe the be photographer was a friend of the parents and that's why they ended up getting that. It says uh, 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 Spencer's father, Rick, recounted the photo shoot to the US radio network NPR saying he'd been offered $200 to take part by Weddle, who was a family friend. Uh, we just had a big party at the pool. No one had any idea what was going on, he said. So, yeah, and I Is mean, it's shaky, shaky ground to call it to question. Sorry, what's that? Sorry, I was just I think sort of in terms of American lawsuits, it seems to be a fairly modest claim because it's what, just over a million dollars, isn't it? Or two million dollars, I suppose. Because um, it's a hundred and something thousand split across. Do you say fifteen people or twelve people? Twelve people, I think it is. Twelve people, a hundred odd thousand each. So, you know, you're not looking at a massive claim. And I, I wonder if it's the, the reason why it's relatively modest is because this sort of sexual element is is such a leap that they're kind of just hoping that it settles. Because I can imagine the Dave Grohls of this world would rather just spend the hundred odd thousand dollars and buy it off than uh, than go through the litigation process even if they have a relatively strong defense yeah i i, I think he's, he's he's probably more than likely and obviously this is just my opinion but that, that the guy is more than likely as as like i say he's taken part in like a lot of the anniversary things recreating the image and seems to as and when it has suited him like to be uh, you know, be part of that sort of legacy and it feels more to me that he wants this money and he he wants something from it. He feels he didn't get a great deal from being part of this massive thing, and uh, that maybe as he's been speaking to any form of legal aid, planted the idea that they could go at it from from this kind of point of view. Because he's saying that it's upset or that it could have ruined his life. But the fact is, by the time he was at like little school, and by the time he's got to a certain age, who knows it's him, unless you tell them it's him. 
Like, I could have been that baby, and you wouldn't know unless I told you. Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly that's exactly right, isn't it? I mean, you're not going to identify the adult in the picture of the baby. So it's not really going to have an impact on the adult's life. I mean, I can understand the idea of somebody feeling exploited as a child and that having an impact on them as adults. And, you know, certainly in a sexual context, you do you do see that. Um, but I just don't make the connection. But really, I don't think, I think he's done anything else since. And he says he doesn't remember, obviously, taking it. He says he just sort of like, as far as his memory, you know, goes, he's just been involved in this big thing that he knows of. So, you know, we're talking about maybe like child stars and the way that they're exploited and how it can ruin a childhood. Whereas, you know, a picture of me naked in a bath or something that probably exists somewhere in some family member's house as a baby, like being washed in the sink or something like that. Like, I don't think it would, but I'm only talking from personal aspect, but I don't think it would bother yeah, yeah. me too much if I knew I was the baby on the Nirvana thing. I'm like, you tend to look very differently even after a year or so of that. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. It's, just, it's just hard to say that that's, you know, whereas like if you were younger or a teenager or it was happening a lot and um, it happened a lot in your childhood and, and you, you know, had a lot of people robbing off you or, or, or like you say, the child stars and the way that some, sometimes they're treated or have been historically treated, then I, I, I can understand that. But this doesn't strike me as a, as a sexual image. I mean, I had a T-shirt of it on at one point because, like I said, I was a fan, uh, and I never thought I was walking around with child porn on. Well, I heard so you know. No, exactly. I mean, that that aspect of it does seem to be slightly opportunistic. I think, which is why I think this might be a lawsuit more intended to settle than litigate, because I, I just don't see that that's really got much merit. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, it's a thirty-year-old picture of you know relatively famous particularly in musical circles famous enough that i a famously uncool person am aware of it and um you know i've never once heard it suggested that there's anything even remotely sexual or sexualized about that image so that's not a that's not a connection that i make um and i, I just don't see how it can reasonably be made so we'll, we'll end that there. I just thought it's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm a big fan of it, so I find it a bit weird that this comes up that time. And obviously, it's such an iconic thing to then be brought into into the limelight again. And also, I've been aware of of the the lad who 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 was the baby for a while because he's been in certain things I've watched over the years of like anniversary editions of things I've read about Nirvana in like magazines and that. So I've seen some of his like reshoots of him in his shorts underneath. He looks a bit like Kurt Cobain now, or at least he did. I think when he did one of the shots, you know, and he's like under the water. So he seemed like, you know, he grew up like love Nirvana being part of it. I always thought from some interviews and stuff he saw and he was a bit of a rocker himself. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I'll keep an eye out, see how it goes. Maybe even see what Dave Grohl has to say about this. <laughs> but like, yes, I, we'll get the, uh, the Grohl story. The Grohl toll will have to be paid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, everyone will just, I, that's, that's just how I think law should be in the country. We ask Dave Grohl, and uh, how, he, how he responds is uh, what we do. We're like, do you think he's a bad person, Dave Grohl? Yay or nay? And then that will be the judgment going forward. Yes, Dave Grohl, the modern-day Caesar. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Caesar Grohl. <laughs> and if anyone can hear, you might hear occasional squeaking or little growls. That is Percy, just to let you know. There's nothing crazy going on, and we're not secretly 
playing with toys. That sounds wrong. Um, I'm just going to let that hang in the air there, I think. <laughs> no, yeah, thank you for letting that awkward moment stay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, I believe it's your segment of the show, is it not? Do you have your What Happened Next ready? I do, I do. And I've taken a slightly different tack this week. So fans of the show will know that the What Happened Next segment is one where usually I would uh, give Dean an extract from some uh, case law from a judgment, and then I would ask him what the next part of the judgment was, and we would see effectively what happened next in the case. However, I have decided to indulge in an egregious breach of the rules, and I've instead decided to um, deal with some legislation uh, rather than deal with um, a case. So I'm going this time to take you, Dean and dear listener, to the Public Health Brackets Control of Disease Close Brackets Act 1984, which the sharp-eyed amongst you will know has been repealed by the Health and Social Care Act of 2008. Uh, But my understanding is that the provision we're about to discuss has been substantially reflected in a subsequent statutory instrument. Um, so this act is no longer in force, but in substance, uh, the, the provision is. Um, so uh, it's section 33 uh, of the Public Health Control of Disease Act that interests me. Um, and it says, no person who knows that he is suffering from blank shall enter any public conveyance used for the conveyance of persons at separate fares, or enter any other public conveyance without previously notifying the owner or driver that he is blank. So uh, not so much of what happened next this week, but more of a fill in the blank. Um, What could you not uh, do on a public conveyance, uh, either a bus or a taxi, uh, according to this act? So he'd have to be suffering from something, and if he did, he had to let them know before he got on the bus. Effectively, yeah. So it separates into, or or it includes both, uh, a public conveyance used for the conveyance of persons at separate fares, so that would be a bus where each person gets on and and pays separately, uh, or uh, any other public conveyance uh, without previously notifying the owner or driver. So that would be a sort of taxi where you could Uh say to the taxi driver something, and then you would be exempt from the provisions of the Act. Tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are you are you are pretty much spot on. Um, it depends on how sensationalist you want to be, because one interpretation of this is that you were not allowed on a bus or a taxi if you were suffering from the plague. Oh, okay. Unless you told the taxi driver in advance that you had the plague, and then he could make a decision about whether or not to uh, transfer you. But this the actual 1984, word, this 1984. 1984, yes, that's right. Um, rather than sort of, you know, 1484. Or <laughs> um, but the actual word in the uh, phrasing in the statute is um, who knows that he is suffering from a notifiable disease. So that does include things like the plague, uh, would probably include things nowadays like coronavirus. And interestingly, what it says is, that if you contravene that section, so if you do go on a bus when you're suffering from a notifiable disease, or you go in a taxi and you don't tell the taxi uh, driver that you are suffering from it, you can not only be fined and convicted for breach of that section, uh, but also 
you can be ordered by the court to pay any person concerned with the conveyance as owner, driver, or conductor, a sum sufficient to cover any loss and expense incurred by him in connection with the disinfection of the conveyance. So effectively, if you get into a taxi and you've got the plague and you don't tell the taxi driver uh, and then he has to disinfect the taxi, you can be given a criminal record and you can also be made to pay for the disinfection of the taxi to make sure that nobody else gets the plague. What's the lower end of that spectrum? As in, so we've gone straight to the sensational, you know, like tuberculosis and the plague. But what about like a cold? And you know you've got a cold, you've got the sniffles, but you're still going to a taxi anyway. It gives the taxi driver a, a cold and that, and he has to spend a couple of days off of work. So that's a very good question. So what's the definition of notifiable disease? Uh, Section 10 of the Act uh, gives a uh, a specific definition, uh, and it is limited to these diseases, uh, cholera, plague, relapsing fever, smallpox, and typhus. So if you had any of those, you would have to tell your taxi driver. As I say, that's since been repealed and effectively replaced with the Health and Social Care Act, um, which basically allows the Secretary of State to make statutory instruments reflecting those provisions. And I don't know to what extent those statutory instruments have been made. Um, But it seems to me very likely that very similar provisions have been made under those statutory instruments. Yeah, so COVID would have been just an implementation of that again, but specifically for COVID. I suspect so. I would be very surprised if COVID was not now a notifiable disease. Ah, Well, that's quite interesting. So um, just let anyone know if you're sitting there, you've got a case of the plague and you're wanting to go uptown for a few drinks. Just make sure to notify your taxi driver. Uh, Make sure he's had all of his plague shots and um, (laughs) isn't in in fear of that. Or smallpox, um, which uh, I believe was finally completely eradicated about 100 years ago, wasn't it? Is it? That's right. Um, I was actually just double checking. COVID is a uh, a notifiable disease. Um, The list is actually far, far bigger now uh, than the list in the Act Um, and includes some some interesting ones. Uh, Anthrax is a notifiable disease. Food poisoning is a notifiable disease. Um, How can you you pass on food poisoning? Is it more about just the cleaning up of the taxi if you were ill? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you vomit on someone, doesn't that then pass? I don't know. I thought, no, because isn't it just about ingestion and, and the bacteria in your stomach? Yeah, but point then, of presumably those bacteria can... Yeah, let's just swallow it. If you throw up in their mouth, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> if you've got food poisoning, do not throw up in the mouth of a taxi driver without notifying him in advance. Also, and this, this might show my lack of knowledge, but I thought anthrax was like a substance. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that because I thought that as well. I thought it was like a white powder. Yeah, they they, they I, were I, posting I, it, weren't they? At one point, or there was a fear, right, fear of I'm, posting anthrax to places that they didn't like. That's right, but I'm guessing that um, it causes anthrax disease. So I suppose it's called anthrax. You can sort of make anthrax or whatever, and then also. Um, it causes anthrax. But you would have thought it would be called something like anthraxis or something, wouldn't you, really? Caused by anthrax. But what a, what anthrax about, itself, isn't it? What about HIV or AIDS? Uh, that I is... Uh, let's have a look. 
I forget which one is like. Uh, no, which. I don't think so. No. Um, I suppose that is in the realm of something that's very difficult to accidentally pass on, isn't it? If I would have thought the same thing, but like if you're bleeding and you've got HIV, then you need to. I'm sorry, I keep getting mixed up which one's HIV and which one's AIDS because they are different. And one is mm. like the actual disease, and one is something that you can pass on, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, there is a there is a really interesting interesting list of notifiable diseases. Uh, leprosy is also one. So if you have leprosy, um, be careful about getting into taxis. Yes, yes. That, 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 I would have told anyone that, just in case yeah. you lose a leg on the way. Well, that's right. And also, <laughs> actually, um, mumps is one. And that's particularly interesting to me because I had mumps, and it is very unpleasant. Um, did you have mumps? I've never had mumps, but that's where you can get like a big swelling in, in the glands, isn't it? And you can look like um, like Jabba the Hutt or something. It just comes out your neck. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible when I had it because I didn't look like I had a neck. I just looked like I had a massive head attached directly <laughs> onto my body. Um, because, yeah, exactly right. The glands in the neck just kind of swelled up and just become part of your cheeks and face. Um, and it was incredibly painful. Yeah, I've, I've heard it's really painful and you can just like be in like a fever dream. Yes. Yeah. I, I Yeah, when I had it, there were some, some good fevers going on. I actually, I mean, I don't, I, I don't like having a fever to be clear. But I do find fever dreams quite interesting because they're just weird, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I only know a lot of this about mumps because of uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> oh, I've not seen the episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, yeah, Holt and uh, Peralta get the mumps and they have to isolate together. And uh, um, like they name the growth underneath their neck and stuff like that. <laughs> and when they fall out, they just poke each other in the in the swollen glands. Ooh. And they're like, ah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so Ooh, there we go. Yeah, so Ooh. keep keep your mumps at home in general, because I don't want to get it anyway. And I'm sure a taxi driver doesn't. Uh, unless you accidentally uh, order a taxi in a fever. So, <laughs> Well, that's the thing now. You could order an Uber, couldn't you? You could do it whilst you're having a fever. Yeah. Would th- it's much easier than it used to be. How would that come out from a legal standpoint? Because your your mindset wouldn't be correct, would it? Yeah, that's interesting. I I mean, le- reading that legislation, there doesn't seem to be any... I mean, it seems to be a strict liability offence. So it's not that you have to sort of willfully do it or, uh, you know, be reckless about it. Um, so I imagine it wouldn't actually matter. I imagine you'd still be guilty of the offence, but obviously it would be, I imagine, quite powerful mitigation in terms of the sentence. So while we're talking about that not being in the right mind, that leads us perfectly into our next case. So this is a a little bit of a case of a... I don't know, yeah, I'd kind of call it vigilanteism. And... Uh, it's coming on. So we obviously, we, when we had a brief discussion about the Kyle Rittenhouse case last week, we talked about sort of self-defense. And this is, I guess, back to a sort of conversation we had about diminished responsibility. And this is about a guy called uh, Gary Pluchet. Pluchet, I believe is how it's pronounced. He, he was known for the 1984 killing of Jeff Doucette, who had kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and molested Pluchet's son. Jody, the killing occurred on Friday, March 16th, 1984, and it was captured on camera by a local news crew. 
Boucher shot and killed Doucette, and he was given a seven-year suspended sentence with five years probation and 300 hours of community service for the shooting and received no prison time. So the case received wide publicity because some people questioned whether Pluchet should have been charged with murder or let off. Pluchet contended that he was in the right and that anyone in a similar position would have done the same thing. So the sort of background to it is that um, Doucette was, he became a sort of friend of the family and he was a karate instructor who Pluchet uh, took um, his son, Jody, to for obviously training and then what would happen was i think Doucette used to take them away on on trips or things like that and say i don't know whether he used like the ruse of like or even if he did take him to like tournaments and things like that but during that time over a, a year or so um while he was taking him away he had sexually assaulted him and eventually abducted him and went away and the police found him and then gary found out that his son had been continually um uh, sexually assaulted by Doucette while they were away. So he waited at an airport when they were bringing uh, Doucette back from wherever they had found him uh, in Baton Rouge, I believe. And as they were walking through the airport, he was he, he wore glasses and a hat and a jacket and was pretending to be on the phone. And in the background of, uh, and I've seen the video as well, in, in the background as he's walking through the airport, this Doucette, um, the guy just turns around and and shoots him, and then Doucette just falls to the ground. Uh, you can't really see much of what goes on. It's not like a gory video or anything like that. You just see him turn around like a, a shot, and then Doucette falls down. And then I think he he, he took a shot to the head and um, died within, by the next day. And then you can hear the police going like, Gary, why Gary? Because I think they were friends with the police, and that might have helped in this matter as well. Um, so the aftermath of that was Pluchet was initially charged with second-degree murder, but agreed to a plea bargain in which he pleaded no contest to manslaughter. He was sentenced to seven years suspended, five years probation, 300 hours community service, which he had uh, completed uh, in 1989. So psychological reports helped Pluchet's case after it was learned that Doucette had abused Jody months prior to the kidnapping. Um, so the psychologist examined Pluchet and determined that he could not tell the difference between right and wrong when he killed Doucette. Pluchet's defense team argued that he was driven to a temporarily psychotic state after learning of the abuse of his son. Um, the psychiatrist also determined that Doucette had the ability to manipulate others and took advantage of the fact that Pluchet was separated from his wife at the time and then managed to wedge his way into the Pluchet family. Judge Frank Sayer ruled that sending Pluchet to prison would not help anyone and that there was virtually no risk of him committing another plot, uh, crime. So that, see, these are a few things that we've touched upon before. So we talked about that time of the young boy in the Dear Zachary documentary and we were talking about, you know, the issues with the woman still being um, given uh, custody of the child while there was an ongoing criminal investigation into whether she had murdered the child's father and that really weird situation of the, of the murdered man's parents working with the <laughs> with the alleged murderer whilst trying to look after their grandson. Um, and we were talking about how she was allowed out and because they said, oh, she only wanted to murder this one guy and no one else, so she's not um, of any um, threat to anyone else. And we've also talked about diminished responsibility and temporary insanity when a geology student that we spoke about before 
said that he had a moment of temporary insanity where he smacked her over the head with uh, a girl over the head with a rock. And then we spoke about the fact that, well, he took the rock and he was ready and he was going for it. So there's a, there was an element of premeditation there, whereas there's also an element, well, there's a big element of premeditation here. He was at the right airport at the right time, ready, disguised with a gun to shoot this man as he goes past. And then there's this uh, sort of social element to it of what father wouldn't shoot the guy in the head that had molested their child. So I just wonder what your your thoughts are on, on this are, because it is a weird one, and it is a very light sentence, although I, I'm, I wouldn't argue it. <laughs> As a as a as a you know an individual and a citizen, I wouldn't argue it. But then you have to look at you know what's written in the law is a bit is a bit different and uh, doesn't always take into account these kind of things and where and you know how you can bend that. Yeah. So uh, diminished responsibility is uh, interesting. It's a creature entirely of statute law. Um, a, a lot of the well, particularly in the criminal law context, a lot of it is statutory rather than common law. But things, for example, like the you know, self-defence that we were discussing last week is uh, essentially a development of the common law rather than something created by statute. But diminished responsibility is entirely statutory and it's contained in uh, Section 2 of the Homicide Act. And what that provides is that somebody who uh, kills somebody else uh, shall not be convicted of murder if they were suffering from an abnormality of mental functioning. Uh, but there are three conditions effectively to that. So the, men- the abnormality has to arise from a recognised medical condition. It has to substantially impair the defendant's ability to do things, and I'll come back to those things. And it has to provide an explanation for uh, the defendant being party to the killing. And the things that the abnormality of mental functioning has to substantially impair are uh, the ability of the defendant to understand the nature of his own conduct, uh, to form a rational judgment, and or to exercise self-control. And what the statute goes on to say is that if you're charged with murder, uh, it is a defence to prove that the person charged, uh, sorry, it's for the defence to prove uh, that the uh, person charged, i.e. the defendant, is not liable to be convicted. So the burden of proving diminished responsibility is on the defence. And if you are successful in making out that defence, then the statute goes on to say that if you would have been convicted of murder, uh, but for diminished responsibility, you will be convicted of manslaughter. So you don't kind of walk away, um, but you will often hear the phrase, you know, manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. So that's the the very broad statutory framework. Uh, And of course, one of the things which arises here would be the requirement that there's an abnormality of mental functioning arising from a recognised medical condition. And I think in our law, that would be perhaps the, the point where this chap would fall down on diminished responsibility because although it may be the case that he, as you say, I mean, there's a degree of sympathy for somebody who's who's in that position vis-a-vis their child, um, but whether what he was suffering from would amount to a recognised medical uh, difficulty uh, would 
be a matter for, for expert medical evidence. Um, but on the face of it, it doesn't seem as though that's necessarily the case. Um, it, what you have to have is a, a genuine medical condition, uh, which is not the fault of the defendant and it's well recognised by doctors. Uh, and it can be temporary, um, but uh, you know it has to be a, a medical condition. So that would probably be where diminished responsibility would fall down in this case, I suspect. How much weight would be on the fact of, I mean, I know it wouldn't be a massive amount of weight, otherwise everyone would probably have killed one person in their lifetime. Uh, but uh, where, where would the weight lie on the fact that he isn't going to be a threat to anyone in society um, and it wouldn't lead to more murders and it's not a spiral into something else? Uh, because he did this one thing and it's very sort of contained and the general message is don't molest one of his kids and he won't shoot you how how much weight would that have well that's um that's interesting because it it, it's important to draw the distinction there between uh guilt and sentence so in terms of whether or not the offense has been committed it would be irrelevant so as to the question of guilt, it wouldn't have an impact at all. But in terms of sentence, it would be quite important mitigation of that sentence. So what you would do is if the defendant had been found guilty, there would then be what's known as a plea in mitigation, which is where uh, the defence barrister addresses the judge and tries to basically get the lowest possible sentence for the client. And in the course of that plea in mitigation, uh, reference would be made to the lack of likelihood of reoffending, and that would be a factor which would then influence the sentence, and hopefully, from the defence's point of view, would persuade the judge to give a more lenient sentence than would otherwise be the case. And indeed, it may well account in this case for what seems to, on the face of it, have been a very lenient sentence indeed. So, yeah, so it seems that it, it was a plea bargain that he got it off and he was uh, charged, I think, with manslaughter, it said. And um, I think it, it, it did come down to the sentence and that's where they were really lenient and were like, mm-hmm. you could have a seven years suspended, five years probation, 300 hours of community service. So technically he pleaded to manslaughter, uh, took that plea bargain, but just never had to serve a day in prison because he didn't break any laws in the time that he was that he was uh, on his suspended sentence. That, that is it, isn't it? When you're on a suspended sentence, it's you, you don't serve it. But if you break any laws or if anything happens, you can be sent to prison straight away. Yeah, so, yeah, the, the suspended sentence is passed. And then if you commit any offences, the court has to reconsider the sentence and basically decide whether to activate the ah, suspension okay, right, or re-sentence. You. Yeah, okay. And then the five years probation is, is also where he'd, he'd have to go see like probation officer or something like that throughout five years to monitor him. Yeah, he got off relatively lightly as as he blatantly murdered someone on live TV in front of everyone. Um, <laughs> I don't think that it would it would happen today. I don't think he'd get that light uh, a sentence. I mean, not, not um, I, you know, I... I I have no sympathy for the guy that he shot. And uh, yeah, I think he was asked, he died um, in 2011, Pluchet, of a stroke. No, he had a stroke in 2011, sorry. He died in 2014 at a nursing home, age 68. And they asked him, um, you know, whether he'd regret it. And he basically said, no, if he if he had his chance, he'd do it all over again. <laughs> so, you know, I have no sympathy for the guy. I completely agree where he's coming from. And you can't help but take a moment to think, 
would you do exactly the same thing? And uh, you probably would um, if you had the chance, because you know at that point I doubt he's thinking too much about himself, is he? Uh, so it's, it's one of those. Uh, but I, I don't think you'd get something like that these days, where it would be as as easily let off as as it was then. I think people would have to make more of a point of certain things, especially. Uh, you know how big cases and things can get these days people will be on it and there's bound to be different sides in the social media i don't think you could uh, allow a guy to just shoot someone and then be given such a, an easy sentence no that's right i mean it, yeah i suppose it would remain to be seen but um i don't particularly disagree with that sentence it's one of these interesting ones isn't it where you know on the face of it you think blimey that's incredibly lenient uh, but actually, you know, once you look into the facts a little bit more and you think about what diminished responsibility means, then um, you can understand that sentence. And I oh, think, so you, know, you think if uh, the same thing happened again in this day and age, that, that a similar sentence would still be a reasonable thing to to out, a reasonable outcome? Well, personally, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure to what extent, you know, a judge would sentence in that way. Um, but, you know, in my personal opinion, uh, I can understand that. Yeah, I think that seems to be reasonable in circumstances where you say, well, this is somebody who, you know, if it's manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility, then, uh, you know, they're, they're suffering from uh, an abnormality of, of mind. And particularly if it meant that they couldn't form a rational judgment or understand their own conduct, um, then it's, um, I think it's it's legit to say, you know, actually you don't need to go to prison for a very long period of time. Uh, one of the things that's worth noting, just by way of, of interesting fact, is that the defence of diminished responsibility only relates to a charge of murder. So if you attempt murder and you're charged with attempted murder, you cannot rely on the defence of, of diminished responsibility. So if you are suffering from an abnormality of mind, make sure the person dies. <laughs> yeah, oh no, yeah. It's like, oh, he attempted it, but he didn't get through with it. But if he had done it... <laughs> Then it'd be an awful yeah. right. Oh, okay. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, <laughs> I always feel that we give some advice that is uh, always on the edge sometimes in this podcast. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, it also leads to an interesting charging point because the the because you can't be charged with manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. So you have to be charged with murder even if it's very clear to everyone that this is a manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility case. So you basically have to be charged with murder and then negotiate uh, effectively the plea to manslaughter and um, because you can't be charged with manslaughter and then raise diminished responsibility because you have to be charged with murder to raise it. We'll move on from that to our final part of the show. That is the I Call Bullshit segment of the show. So, Hooray! This, uh, this is uh, quite a fun one today. Let me just wait for this page to load. So the headline is, He won't be getting out of this one so easily. Contortionist hid in a suitcase to steal from tourist luggage on a bus. <laughs> um... This is interesting because, like, there's, I mean, it's so much easier to steal from tourists on a bus by not contorting yourself into a suitcase. Um, you know, you kind of just feel as though it's almost a step. It's, it's, it's sort of creating a bit of a Heath Robinson machine. 
I yeah, don't. But then, if you are a contortionist, you might sort of do this for your own gratification <laughs> and want to make it a slightly more difficult task that nobody else could do. Um, no, I think this is bullshit because I just don't think a thief would bother. I think you would just steal stuff in the normal way. This is true. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, police have arrested a contortionist who hid in a suitcase to steal from tourist luggage in a bus locker. The flexible thief pinched valuables, including laptop computers, from the baggage compartment during an hour-long journey. He then clambered back inside his case and was later collected at his destination by his partner in crime. Oh, that's actually really clever, isn't it? Blimey. Yeah, I think about it. Yeah. Holidaymakers only realized their things were missing when they arrived at their hotels and opened their bags. For weeks, detectives were baffled as to how so many items were being regularly stolen on the bus route between Girona Airport and Barcelona in Catalonia, northeast Spain. Last Friday, they were alerted by a suspicious member of the public to a large suitcase of 90 centimeters by 50 centimeters that had just been loaded on the bus. Now, <laughs> they don't go into a lot of detail because I've read through this. And, and before I continue, they don't go into a lot of detail about why it was suspicious. Like, yeah. like could, was she just like jealous that she didn't have a bigger suitcase? I don't know. Like, <laughs> or did it just have the imprint of a man? You still see him writhing around. Yeah, just like this. Like, that's a very man-shaped bulge in in that. Yeah, it reminds me. I don't <laughs> know if anyone's ever seen. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. But uh, sort of Danny DeVito, but naked in a in a leather chair. Yeah, he holds. A, I think he holds a funeral for himself, a bit like that episode of Friends where Ross wants to hear all the things people say about him. Pretends to be dead, um, and then so Danny DeVito does something like that, and he, he tries to hide in a chair while everyone's having the wake around him. But he gets too hot, and a bit like that scene from Ace Ventura where he comes out the back of a, uh, a rhino. He sort of <laughs> can't take it anymore, and he just pulls out this chair, but naked, and walks through his own his own wake. So there you go. But um, I, <laughs> I just imagine that. So when they opened it up, the shocked officers found the 1.78 meter man curled up inside. I don't know how tall 1.78 meters is. The Catalan police force, the Mossos de Esquadra, said yesterday in a statement, it was a very unusual modus operandi. <laughs> One of the men bought a bus ticket from Girona Airport to Barcelona, then put a large suitcase in the baggage hold with the other passenger's luggage. A second person had hidden inside the suitcase, and then the bus set off. He got out of the suitcase and, using a torch, looked for valuable objects in the rest of the bags, which he then hid inside a smaller bag. After stealing those goods, he hid back in the large suitcase for the rest of the journey. Last Friday, the officers went to inspect a suspect suitcase and they found a man hidden inside in the style of a contortionist. Police said they had arrested the contortionist and his partner and named them as Christoph Gregors, 29, and Joastor K. Just Joastor K. It's not even a full second name. 31. <laughs> so uh, how tall is that? 1.7 three was it uh, it's 5.84 feet oh, so he's, he's relatively tall yeah he's fairly tall well, he's i mean i mid. i think this, did you ever watch jonathan creek uh, i've seen bits and bobs when i was younger i haven't watched it in a long time it was really good because so for those who don't know it had alan davies played jonathan creek and he was a an illusionist 
who was kind of seconded to the police occasionally when strange crimes were committed. And he would kind of use his knowledge of magic and illusions to work out how these seemingly impossible crimes have been committed. And this strikes me as a very Jonathan Creek kind of uh, case because the show had a slightly quirky sense of humour as well. And uh, I think this idea of sort of somebody getting into a case and being a professional contortionist, I think is brilliant. I think the the error which the, this duo made was always hitting the same bus route. Yeah, you know, just then, then the it gets suspicious, yeah. I guess they wanted to keep the bus route relatively short because, you know, there's a guy in the baggage compartment. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure they could have done that and then, like, I don't know, once uh, every couple of months hit the same one and uh, yeah. no one would have noticed, you know, stuff happens. Um, but, yeah, if they're doing the same thing, if they're doing it multiple times a week even, then they're always going to eventually get caught because people will be like, what is going on in our luggage department? Yeah. Uh, but surprising that they never thought to even check there properly anyway until someone else, uh, a passenger, pointed out the issue. But uh, I just wanted to end the segment with um, uh, with how they've ended it, which I think is fantastic. Uh, a police spokesman joked, I believe this is what the British call an open and shut case. <laughs> <laughs> bravo sir well played yeah so um i thought it was kind of cool it, it's a cool idea but as with every criminal thing as with anyone that uh does this kind of thing they always just get sloppy and it's always sloppiness yeah. that gets you done um exactly someone put underneath as a, a nice little comment uh they should have securely fastened the case labelled for an airport in Outer Mongolia or Patagonia and sent it there with the thief locked inside. <laughs> yes, that would work out quite nicely. <laughs> yes, so I thought that was a, a pretty fun case and you could easily make a film about that, couldn't you? I mean, not just oh, that one segment, but, you know, like, we, you know, the next o- Ocean's 14, they can bring the old te- whole team back and, like, yeah. some sort of contortionist person. They probably have to be oh, a bit young. I think that'd be really good. Probably have to be a bit younger than the cast of Oceans uh, now. Well, yeah, true. But it could be the start of the kind of next generation, like they did with um, you know Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, you yeah, know, get the younger ones in. That was a that was a really well made film. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. We. <laughs> I just realised. I think. I don't know if you're being sarcastic or not with me, or are you? Or you actually think that was a good film? No, I I liked the film. Um, as a bit of kind of nonsense, but it was not a good film. Oh, I think that's fair. That's, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. It, I mean, it was it's enjoyable. I, I watched it. Um, well, probably about a year ago now, and still um, still found it quite quite fun. I think um, I think no matter how bad Kingdom of the Crystal School was or is, um, whatever this next Indiana Jones film is, is I, I get the feeling it's going to absolutely top it for absolute shite. Yeah, I mean, uh, there does come a point where you have to kind of hang up the whip, doesn't there, really? Yes. Yes, like like like, like those people that were arrested for BDSM um, a few yes. podcasts ago. <laughs> it comes yes, to a point exactly. where you're, you're just causing more issues. But um, <laughs> yeah. know when to quit. That's the thing. So we'll leave it there and uh, let us know what you think of the new Indiana Jones film or uh, if you know any contortionists that know any good ways of stealing from people, uh, just send it into our email, which you will hear at the end of the show. Do you have anything to say before we go, Mike? Uh, Yes, I do. Um, Today is National Carbonated Beverage with Caffeine Day. 
So uh, I will be enjoying a Coca-Cola in observance of this very important holiday. What about you, Dean? How are you celebrating <laughs> National Carbonated uh, Beverage with Caffeine Day? I will have probably a beer later. But no, it hasn't got caffeine, is it? No, you'll have to Ooh. like pour in a, an espresso. After a Jaeger bomb or something. Yes, yes. There you go. So it's important to observe these cultural traditions. Yes, it is. I'm pretty sure every day is about a day for five different things. Yes, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, because I can tell you actually that today uh, we're recording on the 19th of November and it is National Carbonated Beverage with Caffeine Day, which obviously is the main event, uh, Substitute Educator Day, which I presume is just an American thing, and then it's National Play Monopoly Day as well. Oh, and so yeah, there is there is that. Well, that's um, good because caffeinated carbonated drinks help you stay awake whilst playing Monopoly. So two of well, them at least, um, you know, blend together. Yes, that's, that's 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 a good point. What what are the Monopoly tokens, Dean? Do you remember? Is it what are they called? Yeah, yeah. What what are they like? The is things dog, that the pieces. Dog. Yeah. Thimble. Yeah, is that no, not what it it's is? a top hat. It's a top hat you're thinking of. No, there's a top hat and there's a thimble. Oh, uh, wait, this is controversial because I think you're right. But th- this says otherwise. <laughs> there's a top hat, there's a thimble, there's a dog, there's a little iron, there's a ship, and there's a bicycle in there. Hold on. And a boot. There's no longer a thimble. The thimble was retired, Dean, in 2017, along with the boot and the wheelbarrow. Ah, and they were replaced, weirdly. Do you want to have a guess? <laughs> what replaced the thimble, the boot, and the wheelbarrow? They were modernising Monopoly. What did they think in 2017? This is what we need in this game. An iPhone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, modernising. So it's not going to be a, a penny farthing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think a, a PC and a knife. <laughs> that's 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 what modern life is to you it's yeah, a computer like, and a knife yeah literally um, I, that's it you're like modern life i'm like yeah you're either on the computer your phone or getting knifed <laughs> um so you're 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 not close to be honest um it's been replaced with the t-rex oh yeah the penguin and the rubber duck Okay, so they've gone right back with the T-Rex. So my yes. penny farthing wouldn't have been too far out. A rubber no. Duck, oh, no. I like the thimble and the boot. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why, you know, what why it was considered so necessary to get rid of the thimble, the boot, and the wheelbarrow. I mean, I can't imagine there were many people that were like, I'd really want to play Monopoly, but I just don't feel... I just get the feeling that when you're Hasbro and you've been selling the same game forever... You need an excuse for why, you know, like certain workers still exist. So they've just got to come up with as many different versions of Monopoly as well as play pieces to maybe keep their jobs. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I imagine they have a sort of like a huge Monopoly foundry <laughs> where some overworked ironmonger is just constantly molding out these tokens. And then one day he's like, I've done them all. I've, I've cast millions of thimbles. There's no need for any more. I'm going to be made redundant. Unless we think of some more, <laughs> some more tokens that I can cast. Uh, so, yeah, that, the T Rex. <laughs> <So, laughs> 
Okay, so, uh, well, yeah, we'll leave it there for this week, and uh, I hope you join us again next week for another exciting episode of Holding Court. Goodbye, everybody. If you know of any strange court or legal cases you would like us to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at holding.court at outlook.com. <laughs>